The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. For better or worse, I think a lot of people still want to see, as you mentioned, uh, the nurturing side of, of, a, of a female candidate and not the ambitious side. I think that kind of carries over into the, how people uh, think about female candidates. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, episode 20. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. And in today's episode, we're taking a curious peek into politics and particularly a curious peek into how to run for a political office. So I thought it would be kind of interesting to start with someone who has an extremely long and successful career in local politics, having also worked in the federal political arena. I called up my friend, Dan Saltzman, and he agreed to be subjected to my curious questions. Dan is currently serving his fifth term as a Portland City Commissioner, and he has been a public servant for nearly 25 years. He's been a commissioner in charge of 11 city bureaus. Dan, like me, was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. And Dan, like me, graduated from Beaverton High School. He received his Bachelor's of Science from Cornell University and his Master's from MIT. He spent many years in the private sector as a principal in an environmental engineering firm. He also served as a staff assistant to Congressman, now Senator, Ron Wyden. Dan served as Multnomah County Commissioner from 1993 to 1998. Dan's focus continues to be the well-being of our children and families, and that has always been his most precious political pet, children and families, protecting Portland's natural and economic environment to achieve a more sustainable future, as well as enhancing public safety and opportunity for all Portlanders. Dan led the campaign for a voter-approved Portland Children's Levy Fund that pays for abuse prevention and other child programs. He established the Gateway Center for Domestic Violence Services, and he recently led a campaign as the Housing Bureau director for a $258 million bond to tackle affordable housing. Dan claims to have largely checked off the to-dos on the list of things he's passionate about. So this is Dan's last year in public office, which is why I thought it would be an interesting and unique opportunity to interview him because I thought perhaps he was able to say a few things given that he's not running again that he otherwise might not be able to say. Although Dan's a pretty open book, so I think pretty much he would have said most of all of this at any point in his political career. In Dan's retirement from public office, he plans to focus on child welfare and foster care. And he said he would enjoy working on these causes in a less scheduled life. He also plans to look into becoming a court-appointed volunteer who works with foster kids in the system. We talked about how to run for office. And what are the very first steps? And I think this is important because so many people I know have considered running for office or it's flashed through their minds. Maybe I should do this. What should I do? What are the first steps? What's most important? Where do you start? So we talked about that. We talked about what advice you can expect to get from political consultants. What is a political stress test? How do you fundraise? What makes a good politician? How does an introvert become a politician? Dan's definitely an introvert, and he had some advice for what he needed to do to become a politician as an introvert. Now, I have this question, and I'm actually wondering what you might think about this too, but I wonder if Americans tolerate ambition in women leaders in the same way that they tolerate or even appreciate 
ambition in our leaders that are men. So I asked Dan and we talked about that and we talked about whether there are different expectations for women, both as candidates and as politicians. We talk about the difference between becoming a candidate and a politician at the local, state, and federal levels. What are the trade-offs? How do you plan your career depending on where you want to be? And how many people use local politics as kind of a launch pad for state and or federal politics and how Dan has really never looked at his local political positions in that same way. And it's kind of a refreshing perspective. I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. If you've considered running for office or know someone who has, be sure to let them know, tell them to tune in. And now I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dan Saltzman. Hi, Dan. Thanks for being here. Hi, Becky. I'm excited to interview you. You started professional life as an environmental engineer. Correct. What is the story behind your foray into politics? Well, I was, uh, like you said, I was an environmental engineer working in the private sector, and I got involved in a a volunteer activity uh, called Citizen Review Boards, where I spent about a day a month reviewing uh, cases of children who were in foster care and making recommendations to the court about what's in their best interest. And it really exposed me just to the horrendous lives that so many children find themselves in through no fault of their own. And long and short, I I got motivated to wanna do something about that. And that's when I uh, got involved as a county commissioner initially and uh, worked on children's issues ever since. They've always been a passion, particularly helping kids in foster care. What did it look like when you got into politics specifically? So county commissioner, the first thing you did was you're working on this this project, and then the first thing you did was what? Who did you go to? What did you ask? How did you investigate the possibility of going into politics? I think, uh, you know, I I had worked for uh, now Senator Ron Wyden, who was a congressman uh, back when I worked for him in the uh, early 80s. So I think that uh, I sort of got motivated to want to serve serve in public office just from being around Ron Wyden for four or five years and seeing how somebody uh, can really work hard and be effective. How did you get involved in working with Ron Wyden? Uh, I had uh, finished graduate school, and uh, again, I was interested in doing something, uh, sort of exploring more uh, public policy issues. And so I went to Washington, D.C. and uh, worked for an environmental group uh, for two years, and then uh, was hired when Ron got elected. He wanted to have Oregonians working for him, and so I was hired to be his first uh, legislative assistant for energy and environmental issues. I want people who are listening to this to understand how they might get involved in politics at a granular level, like, you know, the level where you wake up in the morning, you pour yourself a cup of coffee, you do your calisthenics, you make a phone call. How did you meet Ron Wyden? What what did that look like? Did you just call him out of the blue? I want to see if people can actually take from this actionable bits if they are interested in going into political office. So what did that look like? Did you call him? Uh, actually, uh, his chief of staff uh, called me. If somebody I, I knew, his chief of staff, and he called me about interviewing. So I, I sort of met Ron really when I started the job, uh, as opposed to really much before that. But I, you know, I think people should get involved in politics. Otherwise, they shouldn't be complaining. I think there's lots of opportunities for people to get involved. It's just a, there's no magic formula. You don't have to study politics in college or have political experience as a, as a prior background necessarily. Uh, I didn't have any political background before I ran for office. Uh, as, as you noted, I sort of came up through a environmental engineering, very technical field. When the chief of staff contacted you, why did he contact you, he or she contact you? Well, he knew me. Uh, and also, as I said, Ron was looking to hire people from Oregon. And so he knew I was from Oregon. and. Uh, so he and he knew my background. And I was working for an environmental group at the time in D.C., and so they were looking for somebody to help uh, cover energy and environmental issues. And and Ron was assigned a very important committee that uh, has a lot of responsibility for energy and environmental issues. So it was the environmental element that got you into politics in the first place. Yes, environmental, and then it sort of when I moved back to Portland, it sort of segued into concern about children. Not that I've ever lost my interest in, in concern about environmental issues. I still you know, work on those as well. But I think, you know, children's issues are my, are my passion. You've worked on and or witnessed local, state, and federal campaigns. Are there strategic differences in how 
those are run? And can you describe those differences? Well, I think, uh, you know, a, a local campaign is, is very upfront and personal. I think, you know, voters expect to meet you on their doorstep or something like that when you're running for national office or even the federal congressional or senatorial offices. I think it's, it's a much bigger deal uh, logistically and money-wise and everything else. I'm not sure voters have the same expectation of meeting you on their doorstep. But before you meet them on their doorstep, let's just say that I wanted to run for office. Mm -hmm. What would be the very first thing that I would have to do? Well, uh, figure out what office you want to run for, I guess, would be the first thing. Uh, and then I would uh, you know, definitely do some research and maybe uh, contact somebody who gives advice on campaigns. Uh, there's political consultants around here that uh, can give you some pretty good, maybe sobering advice about whether you, you know, whether you should do this and you know, what's involved, you know, what's entailed in doing it. Uh, you know, it has to, uh, you know, in my case, uh, you know, I'm sort of an introvert, so I had to become sort of a forced extrovert. That's what I call myself. I also have to learn how to raise money and how to talk to people in a way that uh, resonates with them and, and talk to them at a level that they understand. I mean, it's all too easy, those of us in government, we get so absorbed in our jargon and stuff like that. I mean. When I sit in my city council meetings, I'm just amazed how, how hard it would be for somebody from the public to really understand what we're talking about, because we're talking about acronyms and jargon and stuff like that. So, yeah. Is there any book that describes those acronyms, and are those acronyms specific at a local level, or do they also apply all the way up the chain? Well, I think to... they apply all the way up the chain, but each, each local government or federal government, state government has their own set of acronyms. And, and no, there's no book. There should be. There should be like a directory of acronyms or dictionary of acronyms. The first thing is you decide state, local, federal, what office you're interested in. Does it make sense, given what we're seeing now on a federal level, to still consider a local government position a necessary stepping stone to a state or federal position? Um, I don't think it's a stepping stone necessarily. I mean, we've you know seen a lot of races where people come out of just a, a normal background and run for office for the first time and win. Uh, I, I, so I don't think, I know a lot of people still believe it's kind of that stepping stone and, you know, people are always amazed when I tell them I'm not interested in running for another office because they assume we're all here just figuring out what we're going to do next. Uh, but you know, I like local government. I like living in Portland and not getting on a plane to Washington DC every couple of weeks and, uh, or going to Salem. I've always liked local government. So I think it's important to figure out which, you know, what level of government you want to deal with. I mean, we, we deal with fewer global policy issues and local government and more like fixing the streets and things like that. But there's still room to pursue your passions as I've done on issues related to children. Is the decision for you to have stayed in local politics more of a schlepping decision that you just don't want to have to go? Or is it actually the content of the job? It's a little bit of both. I mean, uh -huh. I, you know, I worked four years for a congressman and uh, you know, not a lot gets done in Congress. It's very frustrating to all of us. Uh, and then there's the schlepping, you know, of traveling back and forth from Oregon to Washington, D.C. It's not a real easy commute and, and one I wouldn't want to be doing. So, yeah, I realized, you know, to run for a federal office, if you're going to run for Congress, you're, you have to realize you're going to go there and for 20 years you're going to be a nobody. And then through gradually through seniority, you'll become a subcommittee chair or a chair and then you're somebody. But, you know, that's 20 years is a long period of time. What should someone know other than to be patient that the federal level positions require that they may not be interested in when they really understand what most people don't see. In other words, I often think that a lot of people want to be a rock star or a professional basketball player, but they don't want to be out there dribbling all the time and practicing and doing and, and the calisthenics and the weight or the practicing of their instrument. They just want to be on stage or be on that court. They don't really want to do the job. They want to be the, what should people think about in terms of a national level versus a state or local level? the job itself? Is there, are there things, because you've worked on all of these, are there things you say, well, if you're not interested in this, you should definitely reconsider? Well, I think if you're running for a federal office, particularly in Congress, member of Congress, that's, you have to constantly raise money because you're up for re-election every two years. So one nice thing about my job is it's every four years. 
and uh, you know for senators it's six years. So I think that's something you have to think about is you always have to be thinking about the next election, and um, and that also and that does influence how you make decisions. Maybe it, maybe it shouldn't, but it does. But I think at the local level, um, I've just had the ability to uh, really sort of have more discretion. I think people uh, want you to you know they, there's certain basic issues you need to tend to. Uh, but they, I think they give you a certain amount of discretion in terms of also following your interests and passions as well. All right. Break down for us a little bit of how to fundraise, because I think that that is something that most people don't think about. They yeah. think about a lot of the other aspects of politics and fundraising is such a huge part. How do you fundraise? And is the process different at a local level, or is it just on steroids, but the same process at a state or federal level? Well, I think nobody likes to fundraise. I think that's probably the first rule. Um, everybody hates it. Uh, but I think when you're running for um, a federal office, it's more, you're reaching out more to uh, lobby groups and political action committees, whereas at local level, you're really just reaching out to individuals. Uh, I mean, there are political action committees, but not nearly the same number as you would have for a federal office. Uh, so I'm mainly reaching out to individuals for support. What does it mean to reach out? Uh, well, typically it's calling them and trying to get a, you know, trying to get a conversation going and trying to earn their support and, and a contribution. Uh, it can also be going to a coffee at, you know, somebody's house. Somebody puts on a coffee for you and gives you a chance to meet people. And oftentimes, you know, people write checks at those events as well. What should you learn about a person before you reach out to them, before you call them? Is there a strategy you have, I'm going to learn about what they're interested in, or you just get their name, know that they have resources, and pick up the phone? Well, I think it does help to know what they're interested in. It doesn't mean I won't call people just because I know they have, they give. You know, it's all public when you make contributions, so you can tell who's active or not uh, in making contributions. And if they're making contributions to people that are, uh, you know, like you, you, you think that they'll maybe give to you too. But I also think it's just... Um, Trying to, you know, trying to identify with their level of interest, too. I mean, some people have no interest in local politics, and they have all the interest in what's going on in the national government or state government. So trying to know that ahead of time would, would help, too. Uh, I mean, oftentimes people will just say, hey, enjoy talking with you, but I just don't really, you know, my attention's focused on Congress or uh, Salem, the legislature, and I just don't participate in local races. Or you may have just the opposite, people who focus nothing on but local politics and don't really care what's going on at the national level or state level. Where do you go to find out who donates? I'll put this in the show notes so people listening can... Well, it's all, uh, it's all in Oregon. It's uh, all very public. You have to file uh, reports with the Secretary of State's office uh, every three or four months listing all your contributors. And um, so it's all public information. So someone could just go online and find out who's donating to what campaign? Right, right. All right. So we'll look up, we'll look up that website so we can put that in the show notes for okay. people to listen to. Yeah. So the first step is you decide what kind of office you're interested in, research what that office does, then maybe call up a political consultant to get some advice about what running a campaign would look like. Right, right. And what, is, what are some of the things you'll hear from a political consultant that might surprise people? Well, I think they're going to, you know, they're going to stress test you. <laughs> they're going to try to scare you out of doing it uh, by talking about, you know, some impossible figure of, of some impossible amount of money you need to raise uh, or just how much time you're going to have to work. Uh, you know, over and above the job, but, you know, doing the campaign work as well. They'll stress test you. And uh, once you get, if you get, make, if you pass the stress test, then they'll probably, you know, take you more seriously. Uh, you know, if you don't walk out the door of the first meeting and, and, and then they'll give you, um, you know, some advice. It'll probably be, you know, have a public opinion poll done uh, to see whether people know who you are and also what issues people are, are concerned about and whether that meshes up well with you. Uh, and then they're gonna also talk to you about getting a, a campaign manager and uh, maybe depending on the level of the race, somebody to help you uh, fundraise as well. Um, and then uh, they're gonna see if you follow through on their advice. What is the money mostly used for? What's the biggest chunk allocated to? 
Well, it's either, it's typically direct mail or radio or TV or social media. Uh, you know, I've done ads on Pandora before and things like that. So those, that's probably, and then, you know, a certain amount of staffing too. If you have a campaign manager, if you have a fundraiser, they have to be paid. Uh, your political consultant has to be paid. So, yeah, but I'd say the, the real expensive stuff is, is the voter contact. All right, so I'm going to tread a little into some dangerous gender territory because I've been wanting to ask this for a long time, and I've asked people that are not in the political arena, but I'm very curious about whether the majority, let's take a step back. The majority of the Americans, I think, would support a woman leader, whether it's the local, state, or federal level, support women leaders who are smart, Mm -hmm. They'll support women leaders who are attractive. That's not necessarily a requirement, but certainly, yeah. you know, not not something that is not considered. Mm-hmm. They may support women leaders that are nurturing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it even that this might even play out more at a federal level. But do you think that Americans support women leaders that are ambitious? Do they want their female leaders to be ambitious the same way? they want their male leaders to be? Uh, that's a great question. I think that, um, you know, I think, you know, for better or worse, I think a lot of people still want to see, as you mentioned, uh, the nurturing side of, of, a, of a female candidate and not the ambitious side. The ambitious side is typically associated, well, you know, your mother's nurturing, your father typically in most families is, you know, the ambitious one who's uh, always trying to move up the ladder. So I think they kind of, I think that kind of carries over into the, how people uh, think about female candidates, uh, as I said, for better or worse. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that there's, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of women uh, office holders, and I, I find them to be easier to work with than uh, males. You do? Why do you find them easier to work with? I think uh, males are, are too competitive with one another, with, you know, everybody, especially when you're in the political realm. Uh, it's all about, you know, as I said, it's all about what am I going to do next? What am I going to move up the ladder? I, I think women may have the same ambitions, but they, they hide it better. And I think they, as I said, they show a nurturing side. And, um, and I've generally found uh, women to be more concerned about uh, children and family issues as well. And that's a particular issue for you. So that, right. would be, so that makes sense for you. Yeah. Should women running for office consider these different perceptions and include those in their strategy? Uh, I think so. I mean, I'm not an expert by any means on this. I'm not sure what a political consultant might say, but uh, yeah, I think that's, I think it's better to be seen as nurturing than overly ambitious. And once in office, do you think that same thing applies? I think so. Yeah. Um, You know, like you observed, I think, you know, people you mentioned appearance, and for better or worse, you know, people react more to how a female looks than they do to a male. Uh, you know, it's a double standard, but uh, it's definitely something that I, I believe is, is there in the back of people's minds. So, yeah, I think it's probably good to associate yourself more with the nurturing side. When you mentioned that you had to convert yourself from an introvert to a, what did you call it? Forced extrovert. Forced forced extrovert. Can you tell when you are meeting with groups of leaders, can you tell if you you didn't know them, is there something about the way a leader or political leader or a successful political leader carries him or herself that you are able to identify in meeting them for the first time? Uh, You know, maybe not meeting the first time, but I think over time, I certainly, you know, I've served with a lot of fellow politicians over the years, and I can tell which ones are sort of the, you know, nakedly ambitious. I'm only holding this office for a certain period of time to, like, find an opening to move up to the next office. So, yeah, I, probably not on the first meeting, but, you know, over time I can tell. So if you were working with a political consultant, would you be able to meet with their potential clients and say, mm, you don't have what it takes, or do you think it's much more complicated than that? I mean, at this point, can you assess it pretty quickly? Yeah, I think I could. I, I think I could give an assessment. It, it could be totally wrong, but... Um, what would you be looking at? Well, I think it's the uh, same thing a political consultant would be looking at. You know, how hard are you willing to work, uh, both at the, uh, 
the campaigning and the fundraising. Um, and those are really sort of two of the biggest determinants, I think. Uh, less so about what you may actually think about an issue. You know, issues do are important to people, uh, but you have to reach a certain threshold of credibility if you're running for an office. And that's reflected typically in your fundraising. How much do the political identity politics play in a local level? You know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican at a local level, how does that play in? It's so obvious at the state and federal level, but it's less obvious at the local level. How does that work? Well, that's something I like about local government is, at least here in, in Oregon, uh, local governments are uh, nonpartisan. I mean, you don't run as a Democrat or Republican. You just run uh, for the office. And uh, if you get over 50% of the vote, you win in the primary. If you're not, the top two candidates run off in the general election. So it's less partisan. And I like that. I mean, we're not even allowed to be affiliated with either party or any party, political party. Do donors and other people try to kind of suss out what you might, what team you might be on? Is that part of the well, fundraising I think, process or not really? Well, I think in, in Portland, uh, you know, most people here are Democrats. So I think that's most people who are running for office are, are Democrats. Um, is that different in other places, local politics? Is it partisan? Oh, I think, is it, oh is it partisan? Is, is it partisan? Yeah, it is different in other places. I mean, yeah. it's, I, I think a vast amount of local governments are nonpartisan, but there are, there are mayors that are a Democrat or Republican that run as a Democrat or Republican in other cities. I couldn't tell you which ones off the top of my head, but I, I know, well, like Chicago, for instance, that's a good example. I mean, that's a very partisan environment. You run as a Democrat or a Republican or independent. Uh, but no, in Oregon, um, local governments are all uh, nonpartisan offices. Portland has a unique political structure with the commissioners and the mayor. Can you describe that a little bit to the audience outside of Portland that might be interested? Yeah, we have, um, as you said, a very unique form of government. Uh, it didn't used to be so unique, but over time it's become sort of the last city government of its type where the it's called a uh, sort of a weak mayor form of government. So the mayor mayor has certain authorities over the commissioners, but uh, the mayor participates in meetings and votes just like any other commissioner. So the one power the mayor has is he or she can assign bureaus to us. And that's also a different thing about Portland's government is we actually, the commissioners as assigned by the mayor actually are the CEO for a particular bureau they're assigned, as well as a policymaker in the council chambers. So, yeah, but uh, in a lot of cities, you know, the mayor uh, is it's much more like Congress, where the city city council is sort of a legislative body and the mayor is more of an executive uh, like the president can veto legislation or things like that. Here, the mayor, we know we don't have vetoes or anything like that. The mayor vote is, is worth as much as my vote. So can you give an issue that as an example so that I can understand you have an issue and it works this way here? specifically, or it has, and how that might work somewhere else. I'm trying to think of an issue, a good one. Um, well, I mean, one of the most important things we do is, you know, we adopt the budget for the city. And um, in a lot of cities in, that have don't have Portland's former government, as I said, the mayor would be uh, not necessarily a member of the council. Uh, he'd be more like a president is to Congress. Um, and so he could... Uh, issue, as our mayor does, issue a proposed budget, and then the council, uh, which includes the mayor, uh, deliberates and ultimately votes on that. In other cities, it could be, uh, you know, just like in Congress, the president proposes a budget and then Congress approves a budget, and the president has to sign it into law or veto it. So we don't have that, that power doesn't exist for our mayor. There's no veto uh, or anything like that. He, he, like I said, he or she is just simply uh, a fifth member of the city council. Does it require less collaboration because you're in charge of your own bureaus mm -hmm. and you're all CEOs of your own bureaus versus if you were all collaborating across right. all bureaus? Well, yeah, it does tend to make us more um, focused on the issues that affect our bureaus, which isn't necessarily a good thing. I mean, we're, I always remind myself, you know, we're elected to serve the whole city and to make policy decisions on a citywide basis, but all too often, in our form of government, we will defer to whoever the commissioner in charge is on a given issue. So if it's a, a you know, I'm in charge of the Transportation Bureau. If it's a transportation matter, my colleagues are probably going to give more deference to what I think on an issue as opposed to maybe what they may independently 
think. So yeah, it does result in, in less collaboration because we're sort of in, it's been called a silo mentality where we're sort of, like I said, we're more absorbed about the bureaus we control. And, uh, and then on the other issues about bureaus we don't control, well, we're gonna be more deferential to who that commissioner is. Do you think that it gets a deeper level of expertise because you're able to focus on fewer things than if the mayor was responsible for everything and you had kind of equal expertise across all. Have you have you learned about topics and become expert about bureaus in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise, you think? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, you become very more, you have a lot of expertise in the bureaus that you're in charge of. Uh, but that means also that you have less expertise in the bureaus you're not in charge of because you're more inclined to listen to what the commissioner in charge will say. And when I, you know, on the county, it's not like that. The the county is more of a traditional form of government where it's the, the county chair is, is sort of the executive and uh, he or she controls all the bureaus and the rest of the county commission are like policymakers. So when I was on the county commission, I think I learned more about every aspect of, of the county than I may have at the city. Although I've been here now, well, I've been here 20 years, so I've learned a lot about most of the city. But uh, as a general rule though, I think you, when you're uh, on a on the county commission, you, you, you learn more because you're you're not restrained. Do constituents understand what city com- the job of a city commissioner is and probably more importantly, what it is not? I think, uh, you know, people that have been around Portland and understand this unique form of government seem to, seem to like it. Uh, you know, we've had ballot measures to change this form of government probably eight or nine times in the last 20 years, and they've always been defeated. So I think people, I think Portlanders like the idea that they know who's in charge of roads or they know who's in charge of sewers or water uh, and that they can have maybe more access that way as opposed to trying to contact the whole city council on an issue. They they know about commissioners in charge to go that route. What was your favorite bureau that you've ever been able to work on? I liked having the Bureau of Environmental Services given my environmental background. Uh, I also uh, you know enjoy having the Transportation Bureau. It's got a lot of different aspects to it you know, everything from speed limits to uh, the future of how we get around from here to there. What would surprise people most about that bureau? What is something that you've learned since being in charge of that bureau that you think would surprise people most about transportation? Uh, I, I think that they would be surprised maybe to realize how, some, how sometimes you know, we're not the only jurisdictional agency with control over roads. Like people don't understand that 82nd Avenue is a state highway and it's not a city street. So ODOT, Oregon Department of Transportation, controls what happens on 82nd Avenue or Sandy Boulevard or other places like that. So they're, you know, they're always thinking we're the local government responsible for fixing the potholes, but it's not often, it's not always us. So that's confusing and, and it's- I didn't know that. Yeah, so you probably didn't know it either, but- Yay, yeah. I learned something even more interesting specifically, specific to Portland. Yeah. Where do you go, where would one go to find out that information? Oh, probably. It's probably if you go to the Bureau of Transportation's website, you could probably find that out. Huh. I did not know that. What has been your biggest surprise while serving in office in any of the capacities? Biggest surprise is, uh, you know, you always think that uh, people don't like politicians. And I guess, and in a general level, that's true. You know, people hate politicians, but they seem to like their local, the one they elect. Uh, uh, but you know, I think that, you know, I, I think in Portland, people are, are very uh, respectful of the work you do. Um, you know, often one of the most common refrains I've heard from people is, boy, I wouldn't want your job. Uh, and I think people, uh, you know, have a certain amount of respect. Uh, Why do you think they say privacy. that? Because uh, I think they, they see our jobs as, as, you know, having to make really tough decisions on, on matters. And they just, a lot of people shy away from that kind of they don't decision like tough decisions. Right. Yeah. They don't want to be the one that has to make the decision. Uh, they may try to influence our decision, but I think, you know, at the end, uh, even if they, if we don't vote the way they want us to vote, I think they have, you know, fundamental respect for how we got to our decision. Um, so I think, and so, and I, that carries over, I think, into the sort of the public realm too. I think people in Portland are pretty uh, respectful of, of your privacy. And, you know, I don't get bothered a lot when I'm in public uh, by angry people coming up to me at a restaurant or something like that. A lot of people think that's the case, that, you know, some angry constituents going to come up and talk to you at a restaurant or yell at you or something. Uh, you know, and like I said, I, I, it may happen elsewhere. I don't think it happens in Portland. Then. Has it ever happened? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's happened, but uh, it's definitely my, uh, a handful of times.
Can you describe your average day? Uh, average day is uh, lots of meetings. Okay, no, I'm talking about you get up in the morning. Oh, you have right. a smoothie made of, the, this is the weeds. I love the weeds. Well, I, uh, I, I'm an avid walker, so I walk in the morning before work uh, about four miles and then, uh, you know, have my coffee, come to work. You have breakfast? No, have my coffee, come into work, and uh, then uh, spend the day either in meetings with people, which includes the bureaus I oversee, weekly check-ins, but also meetings with people in the public who want to meet about a certain issue, and it's usually about money. You know, they want money for whatever cause it is. And then, uh, and then you know, a few days a week, we have formal council meetings. So Wednesdays and Thursdays, typically, we are our meeting days. What's a council meeting? What does it look like? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's generally, uh, you know, we have a certain amount of time in the beginning of our agenda where people can sign up to talk to us about anything. Uh, we allow five people at each meeting up to three minutes. So it can start out on... Do people sign up ahead of time or they show up? And No, they have to sign up ahead of time. And they show up, they sign up on a website or they sign up... Yeah, through the auditor's office. Yeah. And um, so... It's always can be entertaining because people can come in and talk to you about anything. Um, what was the strangest thing someone ever showed up to talk to you about at a council meeting? Well, uh, we have, you know, some people who are convinced our police are bombarding them with um, radar waves and things like that, and uh, and they want us to stop it. So it's like I said, some of it can be uh, bizarre. Others are just. Other times, people want to make a point. Like, we have a lot of people signed up this week to talk to us about Forest Park because uh, they're concerned about um, mountain bikes using Forest Park. All five time slots this week are from people who want to basically advocate against my mountain bikes being in Forest Park. Uh, so sometimes it's like that, and other times it's, um, you know, people, like I said, they can talk to us about anything. Uh, and sometimes it has nothing to do with what we have to say or what we have control over. And then we move into our regular agenda where we have, uh, you know, each bureau has certain items that have to be approved by the council or we have a budget. And uh, that's so we spend the rest of the meetings on that or on land use issues, too. I mean, we have a lot of control over comprehensive plans, land use plans for the city, and we have to make decisions, uh, what we call uh, quasi-judicial decisions. So sometimes we're a formal appeals body for somebody that didn't get a land use approval at the bureau level, they can appeal it to the city council. And we're like a, you know, like a tribunal. We listen and, uh, and then we, uh, we listen. We're not allowed to contact people outside of that process uh, or people aren't allowed to contact us. So it's, it's, that's why we call it quasi-judicial. So we're, and then we render a decision. And that's the decision that is, is binding, although typically our decisions can also be appealed to the state level as well. What's the best way for someone to, A, bring an interesting, appropriate topic to counsel, and also to what should they bring to prepare you to help make a decision that might be sway the decision in their favor? Well, I think, you know, a lot of times, and... and you know, sometimes people do come to talk to us about an issue that really does have uh, a, something we can have a say over. And oftentimes we haven't heard about it before. And, and usually one of us will uh, take an interest and follow through on it. But I would say, you know, be prepared. Uh, you know, make sure you don't speak over three minutes because that's all the time you have. And, um, and it's always good to have a, a, your testimony uh, written out uh, so it can be handed to us as well. It's always good for us to be able to read what you're saying as well. Do you recall a time when someone brought an issue to you that was shocking, but appropriate, but shocking, something that you didn't know about that you were really grateful that someone brought before the council? Uh, I'm hard pressed to think of an example, but I'm sure there has been over the years. Um, but yeah, there's not one that really leaps out. What's the best idea that you had never considered? either brought before you by someone or with another council person, or even at when you were working on kind of the federal level in campaigns, what's, what's the best idea that you've never, that you had never considered? Well, I think a lot of times we're just unaware sort of, of, of the concerns people have. 
on a particular issue and that we can actually, um, and that by them signing up to talk to us, you know, we, we can take an interest because they're right across from us telling us. Uh, whereas they may have pursued that same issue through the bureaus for, for months or even years and all they get is bureaucratic runaround. So they can often, if they're successful and they have a good point, they can, you know, cut through a lot of uh, red tape and bureaucracy and, and uh, maybe get a, a different decision than what the answer they've been getting from a bureau. Do you think that same advice applies at the state and federal level? You see people marching, they have their issues, they have their signs. Is that the most efficacious way to, if you have a specific, not a general gripe, I hate what's going on, but a specific idea or solution or gripe, is is there a better way on the state or Yeah, I think, level? I mean, I, you know, I think marches and other public rallies have a role and can influence opinion too. Uh, but yeah, if you have a specific issue that you're concerned about, I would, uh, I, I think a lot of people assume we're, we're too busy to meet with everyday people. And, you know, we're not. And I've always had an open door policy and Anybody that wants to meet with me can meet with me. But most people assume that's not the case. They assume we're so busy that we would never take a meeting with them. So they never ask. Hmm. Uh, and do you think that that's the same at the state and federal level as well? Um, I think so. It's it's probably maybe not as true at the federal level, but I think certainly at the state level, you you know, you always want to start with your your the person you've elected to office, your legislator. I think that's always the best place to start. They do town hall meetings and things like that to particularly reach out, but they're also willing to meet with you, you know, other times as well. I think, you know, the federal, it's a little more distant and a little harder to have those one-on-one -on -one meetings, I think. But people should be emboldened to pick up the phone or start with their local, find the next point of connection, and from there, find the next point of connection and not be intimidated that people are well, I mean, everyone claims to be crazy busy, right? But not be intimidated. People will be willing to meet with you. And if, and particularly if you have your ideas well laid out and, mm -hmm. and, and, and presented. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, in my office, you know, we have a, we're always in touch with what people are calling or emailing us about. Um, you know, we have a weekly report of sort of what people are calling us about and, and constituent problems we're working on. Um, so like I said, it's a little, probably a little more remote when you're at the federal level or even the state level. It all depends, I think, who your, your particular legislator or uh, representative is. What are your proudest accomplishments? Top two. Top two? Oh, I had three. Top three. <laughs> I meant to say top three. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think the one thing I'll be known for, uh, for better or worse, you know, and I'm not, a, I think it's for better, is, is uh, creating the Portland Children's Levy, which is a voter-approved uh, funding for investments in making kids successful through investing in after-school programs, early childhood programs, uh, child abuse prevention programs, hunger programs, and uh, programs to help foster kids be successful. So I've led that charge three times now with voters, and we'll be doing it for a fourth uh, this May. And uh, my second... Uh, Accomplishment would be uh, the creation of the Gateway Center for Domestic Violence Services, which is a, uh, loca uh, a location out in southeast Portland that is a drop-in center. It's not a shelter. It's a place where people who are affected by domestic violence can go and get help from people we call navigators that help people navigate the system, whether it's getting a restraining order, uh, getting job training, um, whatever they need. And they don't, have to, they don't need an appointment. They just show up during office hours. So I'm very proud about that as well. Uh, third thing would be uh, helping the African-American community to keep a, um, a club called the Miracles Club going and finding it a permanent home. It's basically a social club for people in recovery. And it's basically gone from being a social club to now having uh, sober housing as well. When I first became exposed to them, they didn't have a permanent location. They were, and as you can imagine, in gentrifying north, northeast Portland, having a location was increasingly difficult to find. Uh, so I helped them to find a permanent home and, and that home and now has sober housing on top of it. Fantastic. Those are three worthy accomplishments. Yeah. Are those three things potentially a model for other cities to emulate or did you all and or did you get ideas from other cities when coming up with 
these ideas. Yeah, the children's levy is not unique to the city of Portland. Uh, we, we studied, in fact, San Francisco is probably the first city that did it. But So we looked at what other cities did, but I think we improved upon the product. We make our investments much more on uh, evidence that the programs we're funding actually make a difference. And I think in a lot of other cities, it's more whoever speaks the loudest gets money. Uh, so we're much more evidence-based in our investments. But the idea was not unique to Portland. Uh, the Gateway Center for Domestic Violence Service, same thing. It's it's modeled after um, what are typically called family justice centers in other cities. So we again learned about it from other cities and got it going here. Uh, Miracle Club, as far as I know, that's unique. I don't know if any other. They probably exist, but uh, you know, it was something we didn't necessarily emulate from somewhere else. Well, we'll definitely put links to all of those for people listening that want to get ideas or steal some of your ideas. The evidence-based aspect of the Children's Fund is interesting. What is something that you have found as the best tool for measuring the efficacy of that program? Well, we really uh, put an emphasis on investing in expanding capacity of proven programs. So again, we, we make some judgments about whether a program, and they provide us the information that helps us decide whether a program is really making a difference uh, for kids. And then our decision really goes to expanding their capacity to serve more kids. And uh, uh, so it's really, like I said, looking first at what they can provide us, looking what we know from general research. And then, uh, as I said, we just invest to expand their capacity. If you could have unlimited funds, what aspect of that would you be expanding? Well, I think, you know, we, we invest about $15 million a year right now. Uh, obviously, it, it could be greater and there's a lot of unmet needs out there. Uh, but I think in terms of the issue areas we cover, uh, as I said, early childhood, after school, helping children in foster care and child abuse prevention and hunger, I think those are probably the issues that are most on voters' minds about our kids. That in schools, but you know, we don't do schools. Right, 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 right. We're seeing this weird effect where people are conflating a lack of experience with a fresh perspective. And I think we're seeing it certainly on the federal level, but probably in, in all of our lives, even in our private lives. What kind of experience do you think is critical to being a successful po politician? And are there downsides to experience? Can one be too experienced after all of these years being a successful politician? Well, I find, uh, I think what people look for is, is somebody who, and I think I've prided myself in doing this, somebody that's a good listener too. Uh, you know, a lot of politicians are really good speakers, uh, you know, especially when they're talking about themselves or their agendas, but they're not good listeners. And uh, so I think that's really, you know, one comment I've taken away from my tenure here is that I, I do listen to people and, and often will act. So I think that's a good skill to have. Uh, I think that, um, you know, being a, a, you know, one time when I first ran for office, I was an outsider. So people, you know, do look for, I think there are people that are always going to look for people that haven't had sort of the predictable path of political experience where you move up from one level of government to the next. Uh, you know, some people like that, and that is some evidence that you can do the job, but I do think that people always kind of want to shake things up too. And certainly I think that's what happened, you know, in our last uh, presidential election. People definitely wanted to shake things up. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we're conflating wanting to shake things up or wanting to see a fresh perspective with thinking that that equates necessarily with a lack of experience. But mm -hmm. to your point about being a good listener, how does someone that is looking to elect a politician look for a good listener? It's probably hard when you're seeing them on television because, you know, there's a reporter there asking them to talk and not listen. But I think, you know, if you interact with them at a coffee or a town hall or watch them in their legislative work, I think you can, you can quickly tell who's listening versus who's just talking. Yeah, it would be interesting to be able to have some tool to be able to discern whether a politician is a good listener because per yeah. potentially a good listener makes a better diplomat, makes a better mm -hmm. decision maker. Mm -hmm. right. I mean, really probably the biggest skill is wise decision making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, I think you're right. It'd be great if we had some tool that people could discern that. If you had one law, local, state, or federal, even international, this is just like a fantasy question, mm -hmm. that you could change, repeal, or enact through Dan's executive order, mm -hmm. what would it be? Hmm. Well, uh, it's kind of a hot button issue, but I would change the state law that, and federal laws that for children who are in foster care or 
maybe not in foster care yet, but the working assumption is always it's best to return those children to their parents. And I don't believe that's true, always. But I think it's, we are so, it's become such dogma that, you know, who could know better about a child's well-being and interests than their parents? Well, frankly, there's a lot of parents that shouldn't be parents. And there's a lot of very dysfunctional families. And so sometimes returning that child to the family isn't a victory. Who would be the arbiter? Uh, well, it's, it's, right now it's, you know, the courts and the caseworkers at DHS, but they're all working under a, a paradigm, which I believe is erroneous. It's reflected in state laws that it's always in the best interest to return a child to his or her parents. Can you name some area where the government could probably do some good, but where it has no delegated power to act? Well, I think a lot of times, uh, I mean, good examples, you know, people ask us all the time to take positions on foreign policy, you know, whether, or to, uh, you know, divest from stocks or whatever the city may own. Uh, you know, and we really have a very small role, but uh, to some people that's, you know, that small role is very important. It's important that their city government be against or for something, whether it's boycotting somebody or divesting of something. I tend to think that's not our role, but you know, I realize it is. People expect their local electors to take positions on things every once in a while. So is it better to placate citizens or is it better to inform people that this is not the role of government, or at least this is not the role of the specific right, branch the of government? I find that uh, usually the people that come and want to influence us on an issue are so passionate about that issue that it's hard for them to see how the local government isn't part of the problem or part of the solution. And oftentimes, you know, we, as I said, there are symbolic positions we take, or we'll write a letter to our congressional delegation in support of something or whatever. So I, I used to be more dismissive of it, saying we don't have the, this role, but I guess I've come to understand that it's a role that people expect us to play every once in a while on issues. If I was a politician, that, that would be particularly difficult to not let the truth get in the way. That must be very difficult. What are some of the things about your job that you do not like to do? Well, I don't like sitting through long meetings. Uh, sometimes our meetings can be very long and um, get tiring, part of the job, but it can be tiring. So it, like I said, it's, it's, an hard, it's hard to uh, divest yourself or, uh, from the need to get reelected. So your positions may not be as sincere as you may feel. You're maybe making a position based on what you think is going to get you the most votes. So you know, now that I'm not running for office, I feel much more liberated in positions I can take or saying no to people. But I realize it's a dynamic that's, that's dogged me throughout my political career and dogs most elected officials throughout their political careers is sort of, how do you really feel and how do you feel you want the voters to think you feel. Right. Now that you've publicly committed to not running, is there advice or a message that you can give that you would not have publicly said if you were still planning to run? Well, I'm not sure about particular messages, but I, I would say that I think that as an elected official, when you think you're sort of responding to what the majority wants you to be responding to, that, that there is that, that silent minority who really, and they may not be the minority, they may be the majority, in fact, uh, who really do appreciate uh, when you're thoughtful and, and may take a position that seems contrary to what your own best interests, but respect you for that. And so I would urge people to keep that in mind. That you may not, they may not be the people filling the chamber that day on a particular issue, but they are the wider public who you know, follows what's going on. And uh, you know, I've had a lot of people thank me over the years for taking sort of minority positions on issues. What is a minority position that you have taken? I've had, you know, s some concerns about how we spend money here and have often voted against programs we fund because I don't feel it's effective or it's not our job or whatever. So a lot of on the budget stuff, I've been sort of a sharp eye on the bottom line. Uh, I think on various policy matters, uh, you know, our involvement in the Joint Terrorism Task Force, for instance, is something that's very controversial among certain people. And I've always voted to stay in the Joint Terrorism Task Force, even though that's been a minority position at times. We have we have pulled out of the task force in the past. We're now back in it. But again, I was sort of the one person, uh, you know, tackling the police uh, and fire pension system, uh, which is a very expensive system. I mean, we need it, but it's it's had abuses, and I tackled that and brought a set of reforms to voters that they approved uh, overwhelmingly to, to make, to be you know good to our police officers and our firefighters, but also to be fair to taxpayers. So I was pretty much a minority, something politicians had always talked about 
the need to change it, but nobody had ever actually stepped forward and said, okay, here's some changes, voters. What do you think? When were you unsuccessful at achieving something that you thought was really important? Uh, I don't know if I have been. I think, you know, if I think something's really important, I'm pretty uh, determined about it. Who is your mentor? Well, I think my uh, mentor, you know, Ron Wyden, to a certain extent, but also uh, when I came back to Portland after working in D.C., I uh, got to know Mildred Schwab, who was, a, who was then retired as a, as a city council person, but she had been a longtime member of city council. And so I got to know her after she had retired, and she became somewhat of a mentor to me and somebody I similarly respected, and I think Portlanders respected too, again, for sort of not being afraid to speak her mind on issues, being sort of a, a close watch, a close watcher of how we spend taxpayer dollars and, and you know, not afraid to be the one vote against something or one vote for something. What has Ron taught you, Ron Wyden taught you? Well, I think Ron taught me just the importance of really uh, of sort of being bipartisan, even though we don't, as I said, we don't have political parties at the local level. There is still sort of a premium on being able to work with people uh, you may not agree with on everything uh, and, and working hard. I mean, Ron's always been a hard worker. And uh, unlike a lot of people in Congress who just go back there and you know fossilize, for, as far as I can tell, he's always worked hard. And so I think, yeah, working hard, staying in touch and uh, are things I learned from him. What does working hard look like for a senator or a congressperson? What, is, what does that mean? What does it mean that they're working hard? Because when we're looking out there, it kind of looks like they're not working that hard mm -hmm. and people judge. But what does working hard really look like? Well, I think when you're in a, a partisan environment like the Congress, you know, being able to work with people across the aisle is, is important. Ron's always, he's always been working with Republicans to, you know, he doesn't care about their party. He cares about you know, their view on a particular issue. And if there's agreement there, uh, then who cares whether they're a Democrat or Republican? So he's calling them and saying, hey, listen, he's let's calling go them to or lunch. He's co-sponsoring legislation. You know, there's, uh, you know, legislation sponsored by Ron Wyden and some prominent Republican. And, uh, you know, working hard means also just staying in touch with your uh, constituents. And, uh, you know, Ron does town halls in every county in Oregon every year. You know, that's at least 36 counties that he does town halls in every year. So that's, that's a lot of work. Not the only constituent work he does, but you know, that's a lot more than I would say most your average senator does. For people who consider you their mentor, mm -hmm. how do you want them to describe you behind your back? Uh, well, I think you know, somebody that uh, gets things done, isn't afraid to uh, pursue an issue because it may seem politically disadvantageous or whatever. Um, and somebody that uh, is a good listener and speaks the truth. To wrap up, I want to just ask you, I'll just ask you two quick curious questions. Do we have time for that? Yeah. Two QCQs. What advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? Hmm. My 30-year-old self? Well, uh, I don't know. I think I, I pretty much liked the life path I embarked upon. And so, yeah, I'm not sure I'd have any qualms. So your advice would be keep going, dude. Yeah. You're doing it. You're doing a yeah. good job. Okay. If you could put up a billboard anywhere that would say anything, where would it be and what would it say? Hmm. Well, I, I think it would have something to do with, again, helping foster kids. And it could be anywhere, but, you know, just people, there's a lot of role. You know, I'm exploring becoming a cost of volunteer to help foster kids. And so I think that's because we have more people helping foster kids. It'd be a good thing. CASA is a good organization for people who want to get involved with fostering or foster kids? Uh, yeah, I think kids. so. Yeah. That's a very, you know, it's all premised on sort of that you know, somebody who's an independent advocate for the for the child as opposed to for the family or for the system or whatever. Good. Then we'll put that in the show notes as well. And my yeah. last thing, okay. last yeah. thing is what is your favorite thing to gift? Book, uh, movie, music, product. What's your favorite thing to gift to someone? So something that is more action oriented, I guess. Doing something as opposed to a, an object, giving somebody an object. Okay, good. Then I'll be ready for you. That's the kind of gift I like, just yeah. FYI. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I know you have another meeting, but thanks. I really appreciate it. This was awesome. Dan Saltzman is currently serving his fifth term as Portland City Commissioner and has been a public servant for nearly 25 years. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One. You can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive quick 
Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.